0: A typical macro cycle honestly takes forever (laughs) it takes literally years and years to play out and like you know it's like we i I sort of joke people want their recessions like they want their amazon packages you know (laughs) order it right now get it you know between three and five this afternoon you know that's what people want and it's just like not how it works because it takes a while interest rates rise and then you hold off lending and you hold off spending and then it takes some time and then eventually you have to refinance and you know like this is just a very slow moving process and so the macro economy, honestly, moves so much slower than what people actually think. What the, people's expectations whip around, and particularly if you're on Twitter and stuff like that, like, you know, day to day expectations. It's a boom. It's a bust. It's a boom. Mm-hmm. It's a bust. The reality is it's moving at a glacial pace. So that's an important thing to just contextualize that these things typically take three to five years to play out from the beginning of a meaningful tightening cycle to the bottom. So, you know, we're not that far into it. Right, we're only 18 months into something that could take easily five years to play out.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Swan Signal Live. I'm Sam Callahan. I'm the lead analyst at Swan Bitcoin. And we got another excellent episode for you guys lined up today. Really, really special guest from the traditional finance world is joining us. But before we get into it, I want to talk about Pacific Bitcoin 2024. That is the Bitcoin festival that Swan throws every year. It's one of the best times of the year. Um, So go to this QR code. You can lock in early bird tickets you get a full refund in February if you buy right now. And this is the cheapest prices you're going to get. So if you think you're even remotely possible that you're going to go to Pacific Bitcoin, now's the time to lock in those cheap prices. Hit this QR code right here. Go to Pacific Bitcoin's website. Check out the last time speakers. Uh, It was an excellent, excellent time. So go check it out. Um, What we're going to be talking about today is really zooming out. We're going to talk about kind of investment philosophy, uh, we're going to talk about portfolio construction. We're going to talk about the shifting investing regime that has occurred potentially over the last couple of years and how investors can protect their wealth. Um, And we have the perfect guest right now. We are bringing on Bob Elliott. He's the former Bridgewater Investment Committee member, as well as the CEO and CIO of Unlimited. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Bob. Hey,
0: thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, you've had a very long and storied career so far in the invest, investment world, and um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into investing, um, and w- w- what you're kind of doing now. Maybe kind of go back, uh, you know, wh- whether whatever, however far back you want to go. But uh, I would love to hear just your story.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I got into investing um, out of college, and I um, I actually didn't um, uh, didn't have much of a investing academic investing background. I was actually a botanist by, uh, academic training. Botan. Wow. That's right. That's right. A botanist. So, um, every <laughs> once in a while, my Twitter feed, you can see, you know, I put pictures of pumpkins and other things that, I'm growing. uh, <laughs> it's, it's still a hobby. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, part of part of uh, I was also interested in, in public health and economic development issues and things like that. And so over time, increasingly realized just basically the macro economy drives so much of what's going on pretty much everywhere, mm-hmm. um, whether it's, you know, buying a car or a house or, you know, what wages you're getting, all of those things are driven by macroeconomic forces. And so I actually came to Bridgewater with the intention of kind of getting a a paid master's degree in macro and then going on my way with that background. And, um, you know, over the course of several years, just increasingly fell in love with macro markets and, and trading and systematic investing. And so, uh, was there for almost 15 years, uh, building and really helped, helped helping build Bridgewater from being what it was, which was a challenger, uh, a real challenger in the, in the macro space to being the incumbent, uh, left uh, about five years ago, wanted to get back to something smaller and more entrepreneurial, Mm -hmm. um when you're the incumbent it's always a little bit of a challenge uh to keep innovating and did a couple of different things but but sort of over time increasingly recognized that two and twenty businesses which you know hedge funds venture private equity things like that those are good businesses for the manager and i can tell you having sat on the other side but they're not great for the investor and the reason why that is is those businesses are often good at generating good returns, but they're also good at charging high fees. And so mm-hmm. that got me to thinking about whether there was a way to bring those sort of concepts of diversified low-cost indexing, which have obviously totally changed stock and bond investing and how many investors uh, invest today, if we could bring that to the world of 2 and 20. So that's really what I've been on a mission on for the last couple of years, which is uh, using technology to replicate the returns of two and 20 style strategies and then packaging them in a way that makes them available to all investors at a much lower cost and better liquidity um, than, you know, typical LP, high cost LP positions. So that's what I've been doing at Unlimited. Um, And uh, but, you know, as part of that, I'm still highly plugged into the macro economy to investing more broadly. So, um, you know, that's uh, that's hopefully what we're here to talk about.
1: Yeah, we are. Yeah, but um, you know, at Bridgewater, if for listeners who aren't familiar, Bridgewater is the largest hedge fund in the world. Um, and you might be familiar with its founder Ray Dalio. He's written a lot of books. Um, really respected because they kind of set up this framework for investing way back in I think the '80s, where this started to get uh, adopted, and then it became very popular. And it's around diversification and having like a all weather portfolio that could perform well and provide consistent returns over different investing environments and so Bob you said you've been there for 15 years I'd love to just go back and kind of talk about the investment philosophy that you kind of learned when working at Bridgewater and how you kind of apply it today
0: well I, I think the biggest thing is uh, when you're when you're sitting as a macro investor which is which what I mean by macro investor is an investor who's primarily focused on the returns of you know country level equity indices, Bond markets, currency markets, commodities, etc. Not individual stock picking, mm-hmm. but sort of the overall index style investing. What you learn uh, through that process is that there are sort of fundamental cause effect drivers, particularly tied to the macro economy, that drive macro asset market returns. And so, I think one of the key things is really helpful in terms of uh, in terms of my development as an as an investor is developing that sort of rich, deep understanding of the macro connection. So why would bond yields move up or why would they move down or stocks move up or stocks move down? Mm-hmm. A lot of times th- at the macro level, those are driven by sort of these fundamental properties of the economy, which for instance, whether growth is getting stronger than people expect or inflation is lower than people expect, or monetary policy is tighter or easier than people expect. Those different underlying core drivers then ref- are reflected in what goes on in macro asset pricing. And so, in a lot of ways, I think macro markets really is a really useful lens because it allows you to connect the big themes that are going on in the in the in the economy to to market returns that you know give opportunity for betting or what we call generating alpha um, mm-hmm. over time.
1: Yeah. So you said that there are these like connectors and you brought up uh, inflation, growth, monetary policy. Um, is that how you think about investing in these different asset classes and you kind of look at their relative performance and that's how you kind of construct a portfolio? Is it that You start there and then move out?
0: Well, I think it's important to, re- to, to think about whenever you're uh, investing, there's basically two sources of investment return. One is uh, what we call beta, which is passive investing, which means if you buy stocks, you know, stock market, you would expect over time for that to have a positive return, right? Because, you know, if it didn't, why would you ever buy stocks? Why would you ever give a company your money through equity issuance? And so the key things to think about for beta is what we call it is to think about how do you balance your portfolio to most effectively, uh, be sort of balanced to different macroeconomic environments. So sometimes inflation is going to be high. Sometimes it's low. Sometimes growth is strong. Sometimes it's weak. And how do you make sure that you don't get overweight on one particular outcome or another? The other side of generating returns is something called alpha. And what alpha is, is basically taking bets in markets, right? So saying, I think, you know, the market pricing is a certain thing. For instance, if you think about the Fed Right now, the market is pricing the Fed to cut four times in 2024. You Mm -hmm. can either think that that's too much or too little or just right. And that view relative to what's priced into the market is what generates alpha, right? If you're right, then you make money on that trade. And if you're wrong, you don't, you know, you lose money in that trade. Exactly. And so you want to think about those two things differently. For beta, it's about balance. And for alpha, it's about really understanding those macro linkages and comparing them to the market pricing. To see where there are opportunities where the probabilities that are priced into the into the markets are inconsistent with the probabilities in the macro economy
1: that makes a lot of sense and let's let's just kind of go into it right now i mean we kind of saw i would say a shift in, in the inflation picture over the last couple of years pretty substantial um you saw the fed go on the one of the fastest hiking cycles in its entire history um and then you have growth, you know, nominal growth is pretty high, uh, I would say, uh, in terms of like historical averages. Um, do you think we've kind of entered into a new investment regime for the 2020s uh, compared to, say, the last couple of decades? And how do you think investors should think about if we are into a new investing regime right now?
0: Yeah, well, I think most of us uh, have in our professional experiences basically experienced two Uh, Related environments. One is a wave of secular disinflationary pressure uh, that really started in the mid 80s and played Mm -hmm. out basically until COVID, where inflation kept falling for a number of structural reasons related to the global integration of supply chains and actually uh, increased sort of peace globally. Um, And those two things were related. And so it basically created a tailwind for. The central banks across the developed world to keep easing any time that you saw growth weakness. And then yep. the second piece that we saw um, was in the last 15 years, the so 15 years basically through part of COVID, was a real challenge that central banks had re-stimulating the economy. The reason why that is, is because we were experiencing uh something that uh what I what I'd call a depression. And what I mean by that is not that. You know everyone was had lost their jobs it just meant that we had too much debt relative to our income and so it meant that it was hard to get people to borrow typically a central bank when they're trying to stimulate the economy lowers interest rates people borrow more buy a car all that stuff you know mm-hmm. buy a house etc but when you have too much debt you can't do that and so the way that the central bank had to respond to that was through huge monetary stimulation right through printing money and handing it buying assets and eventually handing it to people themselves Those sorts of dynamics are unlikely to persist in the future because we've now transitioned from a world of secular disinflation to more secular inflationary pressures, not huge, but certainly not disinflationary pressures. And we've gotten to a point where we've gotten most of the households and businesses in America out of the depression scenario where they now have relatively good nominal incomes and they're spending that. And so we actually have pretty good growth, all things considered. And we have a pretty good economy these days, all things considered, given uh, those steps that we're taking. And so probably what we're going to see over the next, you know, 10 years is going to look a lot different than what we saw over the last 15.
1: I think, you know, when people say like, you know, nominal income is pretty good for a lot of Americans, they would say, hold on. Um, You know, when when you do that against inflation, when you look at like real wages, uh, it kind of paints a different story. So, wh- what do you say to that? Like, you know, why does nominal wage growth matter? And why not just always look at like real wage growth?
0: Well, I, I think it, it's true that we're, we had a circumstance, and this is typical of any time you have an inflationary impulse, which is prices rise faster than wages rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that will, that's what we saw really for the first two years of this inflation period. Now we're starting to see that flip, right? Which is prices are starting to moderate. And it's taking a while for wage growth to catch up. But now wage growth is actually above price growth, which yep. is beneficial to the consumer. And so what I'd say is if you're looking at it from the Fed's perspective, right, what the Fed cares about, particularly when it comes to inflation, inflation is a nominal concept. So that, that's an important thing to consider, which is what the Fed cares about is how fast are prices rising. And so nominal wages are related to nominal spending, which is related to nominal price increases. Right. And mm-hmm. so those those that is the connection. So that's why so often the Fed is focused on nominal price wa- rises, even though, of course, for the day to day consumer, what you really care about is like, how much is your paycheck going up relative to what does the oil price look like when you're thinking about whether your head's above water or not?
1: Yeah. And then, you know, we focused a lot on uh the labor market just in general like the public officials say that it's really tight that the unemployment rate is still at historic lows um and i think that surprises people because the fed did raise interest rates uh all the way up to like five and a half really fast and we had a lot of leverage in the system a lot of people were surprised the fact that they got this far and we haven't seen a lot of uh, rise in unemployment and we haven't seen a ton of disruptions in, in the economy. Are you surprised that they were able to get it up this high? And um, you know, what do you, do you what do you make of this low unemployment rate? Do you think that's subject to change soon?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I uh, I was just the other day uh, uh, reviewing some stuff that I was saying uh, back last last fall. Where mm-hmm. basically, I don't know if you remember when the sort of uh, Bloomberg consensus economists were 100% probability <laughs> yeah, that's of, never, that's a hundred percent probability—that's never good. a recession, right? <laughs> I don't know. Anytime, anytime the, uh, uh, you can get a hundred percent of economists to agree to anything, you probably should fade that. <laughs> yeah. um, and 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 at the time, I I you know I was a bit of an outlier, and I said, no no, no we're not going to have a recession within twelve months. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that is, there's two main reasons why that is. First of all, I think. It's important to contextualize how macro cycles work. Most of us have only experienced like 20 and 08 as downturns. And those were very acute crisis experiences. A typical macro cycle honestly takes forever. (laughs) It takes literally years and years to play out. And like, you know, it's like we, I I sort of joke, people want their recessions like they want their Amazon packages, you know, (laughs) order it right now, get it, you know, between three and five this afternoon, you know, that's what people want. And it's just like, not how it works, because it takes a while, interest rates rise, and then you hold off lending, and you hold off spending, and then it takes some time, and then eventually you have to refinance And you know, like, this is just a very slow moving process. And so the macro economy, honestly, moves so much slower than what people actually think well, the people's expectations whip around, uh, particularly if you're on Twitter and stuff like that, like, you know, day to day expectations. It's a boom. It's a bust. It's a boom. It's a bust. The reality is it's moving at a glacial pace. So that's an important thing to just contextualize that these things typically take three to five years to play out from the beginning of a meaningful tightening cycle to the bottoming. So, you know, we're not that far into it, right? We're only 18 months into something that could take easily five years to play out. The second thing I'd say is the economy was basically totally restructured following the the gfc the great the, the global financial crisis mm-hmm. to reduce the sensitivity of households and businesses in particular on borrowing and particularly on short end borrowing one of the big problems with the global financial crisis was that households had borrowed a lot of floater mortgages and those mortgages reset and then those resets were too high relative to their incomes and then they defaulted on their yep. their loans and they stopped paying for their houses and the rest is well-known history by restructuring the debt markets, both for businesses and households, to extend maturity, right? To only basically only you know 90 plus percent of mortgages are now long duration, 30, 20, or 30 years. It means that when the Fed raises interest rates, there's actually very little effect. Now imagine you're sitting if you're a middle class household, you're getting your wages growing now at about 5% a year, and interest rates have risen from zero to five and a half right? But your mortgage hasn't risen. So your wage growth has risen. The money that you're making in the bank account and your bank account has risen, right? You're your like, you know, money market fund is risen in terms of its yield, but your borrowing costs haven't changed. And so actually, in some ways, many of those middle class households are in some ways better off today than they were before, through that dynamic of having locked in a very low mortgage cost, very low borrowing cost, for a long time. And so the result is you're going to have, the fed basically has to either get interest rates to be up high for a long time, or they have to get asset prices to fall. And so far at this point, you know, stocks are basically at all time highs on a total return basis and house house prices are at all time highs. And that's, those are the sorts of things that don't like until that changes, the economy isn't meaningfully turning
1: Do you think like it's almost like with the fed raising interest rates right now also like people can just turn and, and pour money into like a money market fund and earn a pretty decent yield now uh which kind of helps their their balance sheets the, the household balance sheets too it's almost like rising interest rates could actually cause more inflation at that point am i yeah thinking about I mean, that right
0: yeah i i think it, it's it's a reasonable intuition i th- i think you have to balance the, incre- the incremental income that you earn from the elevated interest rates relative to the re- reduced borrowing that occurs from mm-hmm. higher interest rates. And so, and, and part of the thing to say is the income that you earn on your savings, your propensity to spend it, particularly those who earn significant income on their savings, their propensity to spend is relatively low. Whereas when you borrow to buy a house or buy a car, right? That's a very, or washing machine. That's a pretty direct spend into the economy on economic activity. And so while you're right, those two things kind of offset each other to some extent, the impact on borrowing is definitely larger than the impact on increased income and savings for households and businesses. It's that makes- just that they mute each other to some extent. And because the duration of the, because because people have termed out the duration, households and businesses have turned out the duration of their borrowing, the higher interest rate level isn't affecting them nearly as quickly as it did in previous cycles.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they locked in these like fixed thirty-year mortgages. They're not going to be impacted by the the rise in interest rates. I mean, think like about, about it. interest rates.
0: Crisis. Interest rates could be a thousand percent, and if you've locked in your two percent mortgage,
1: yeah, you're not going you know, to. It's not doesn't like doesn't make any digital, difference, right? <laughs> the loans that blew up in the global financial right. crisis. But what I I did read that uh you know but in the UK and in Australia. They do have a lot of adjustable mortgages there um and we we live in a very globalized economy do do you think there could be like a contagion factor there where you know the real estate market in australia or the uk that are impacted by the the rise in interest rates that could kind of trigger other things or do you think you know the us real estate is just the one to watch and that's kind of drives everything but um do you ever think about that yeah yeah of course and i think
0: um a lot of folks have pointed to these uh high floater rate mortgage economies and and Mm -hmm. suggested that there might be a risk from those resets and um what I'd say is first it takes a while for those resets to play out like they don't reset every time like the UK often people lock for five and then it gets reset so you know there's sort of a flow of those things but it's going to take time and the second important thing to recognize is that while the interest rates are rising on the mortgage borrowing, even for those economies, wage growth is actually typically rising faster than the the resets. And that's a pretty important thing to think about. If you look at the UK, for instance, wage growth is now running at 8% a year, but interest rates have only risen a few hundred basis points. And so Mm -hmm. actually what's happening is wage growth is outpacing the rise in Uh, in interest burdens, right, in debt servicing costs. And so again, some of those households are actually better off because they're getting the 8% wage growth against a few hundred basis point rise in their financing costs.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And like when I look at what you're saying with the mortgages and households too, locking in these fixed rates, you kind of say the same thing for the, the corporate sector as well. I mean, they basically binged on really cheap debt and now I saw a stat that nearly half of S and P 500 debt is set to mature after 2030, and so they just have a longer runway here. But the one, you know, part of the economy that I look at is the sovereign level, where the United States government um, seems to have to roll over a lot of debt uh, sooner than these corporations, sooner than these households, and then they're going to have to face higher financing costs when they do. How do you think about the sovereign level? I mean, you look at the debt, um, you look at the interest expense that's exploding on that debt. And you also look at the deficits and how do you look at that fiscal side of things and how it's going to impact your, you know, allocations as well as your kind of framework around inflation and growth. Um, I would love to just hear your thoughts around that.
0: Yeah. When it comes to the, the government fiscal circumstance um, you want to think about deficits and particularly the changes or expansion in deficits is you know supportive to economic activity and Mm -hmm. uh and declining deficits or increasing surpluses is net detrimental to economic activity um and so part of the reason why we've been able to have such a strong economy over the course of the last couple of years is we're now we've transitioned from a point of running you know modest moderate deficits to running relatively sizable deficits particularly in the context of uh you know running five, six, seven, eight percent deficits in an environment where unemployment is at secular lows is pretty unusual, Rep- yeah. represents pretty expansionary policy. The v- combination of the rise in debt and the elevated interest rates is increasing interest expense. And I think the question is, but um, which many people have pointed to, but this topic is really one where you have to get into the nuts and bolts of the numbers. So if you just think about it very, very sort of simply, we have about 100 percent of GDP of debt. Uh, debt to GDP in the government sector. Um, interest rates are, let's call it five, because you know bills reset immediately and long-term bonds take a while to reset. But let's just call it five. That's about a five percent of GDP set of interest expense. That interest expense sounds relatively extreme, uh, but it's the same, roughly at the same level that we saw back in the '80s. And you know, I don't think anyone, you know, the dollar didn't fall apart, the U.S. economy didn't. It wasn't a disaster, uh, if anything, it was actually a pretty good time for the US economy. And so you look at that, you sort of say this level of interest expense, well elevated, certainly, is um, is is not an intolerable level of interest expense. Now, look, does this mean that probably at some point we're going to have more contractionary fiscal policy than we currently have? Probably. Um, but even at these even at these um, levels, you know, we still have a bond yield that's at four and a half percent, and nominal GDP growth that's well above that, and so we're actually depreciating or depreciating the value of that existing debt stock over time. So we aren't really in a debt trap here. Um, I think some folks sort of look at share of revenue and stuff like that and say, ah, we're in—you know—it's a disaster. It's not really the case. We're back to basically '80s type scenarios, which were totally manageable. Um, and so, you know, th- I think the thing is, the real question is going to be how stimulative are we going to be in the next downturn? Because typically you see budgets blow out in a downturn situation. And given that we've already increased our spending considerably uh, at this point relative to the income, I think it's a real question about what, how expansive mon- uh, fiscal policy will be in the next downturn. So that might make it actually more challenging rather than less challenging in the future.
1: Yeah, I actually wrote about that recently of how we're kind of running these large deficits uh, that typically you see in a rece- in a recession almost before the recession happens and how unusual that is. Then what's going to happen if we do hit a, a real recession and we see unemployment spike and then the deficit blow out like a lot more, even at elevated levels right now, um, what would happen? You know, what would happen to the inflation picture? And but like I have to like, so the early 80s and now, I mean, the difference does seem that the debt GDP is almost triple, uh, probably over triple what it was in, in the early eighties. Um, don't you think that constrains them a little bit or, or no? I mean, you had
0: double. I mean, you had double digit financing costs in the eighties too, right? Yeah. So, the so Yeah. So, I mean, basically like that, that sort of uh, those two things net each other out when you're thinking about that sort okay. of 5% interest, 5% of GDP interest expense, which to be clear is, is pretty high. You know, it's not, I'm not saying it's, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's nothing. It's just this idea that there's a straight line between five percent of GDP interest expense and the total devaluation of the dollar relative to hard assets. Like that, that's not right. Like um, many countries have operated with interest expense at this level. What it requires is over time, either frankly, central bank printing to yeah. enable those deficits to persist, like in Japan, or it requires some fiscal contraction in order to create an overall financing level that is uh you know that is uh, tolerable given the the demand for the bonds i mean look in the us we're kind of lucky like people really want our bonds um in a lot of ways and so the clear the, the real question is what's the clearing price much more than whether people will demand them just in kind of in the same way japan you know japan had huge has had huge deficits for a long time has you know and and um and a lot of money printing but like where's the inflation in japan it's not there um and that's because there's still a lot of demand for japanese bonds particularly in japan from de- the domestic savings sector and the recycling of savings into those into those assets
1: do, do you think that's where we're headed you know because you know japan owns like 50 of its, its bond market right now um Do you think that's kind of where we could be headed in terms of the United States?
0: Well, I I think that it's certainly possible that without, you know, meaningful um, improvements in either productivity or labor force growth, it's going to be challenging to pay off the existing debt stock um, without an undesirable fiscal contraction or um, or, or or a significant Right. Like tax increase that people are not going to not going to talk like that. Right. And so the the answer to that question is, well, then, you know, if you won't accept much higher, you know, more elevated interest rates than is appropriate, given the macroeconomic circumstances and you won't tax people, then the other solution is to print money to buy the bonds. The basic question then becomes um, that balance between. The deflationary pressures the disinflationary pressures that we have in the economy which are real like we have uh you know a secular quite weak um set of dynamics related to uh, you know population growth mm-hmm. um and so that is a disinflationary pressure right that is a long-term disinflationary pressure like we've seen in japan over the course of the last you know 20 or 30 years and so the question is how much printing relative to how much disinflationary pressure exists particularly not right now but like there will be a downturn that downturn will happen it'll create disinflationary pressures and the question is how much does the central bank how much does the fed really stimulate in response to those disinflationary pressures like in japan the answer was they actually stimulated too little and japan saw 30 years of deflation right terrible you know terrible deflation in the economy you know other economies have been known to stimulate too much and so it's really going to come down to what's that stimulative pressure from buying the bonds relative to the disinflationary pressure from the cyclical conditions and the, um, and the more structural demographic uh, challenges.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, the fed right now, they're, they're doing QT, they're reducing their balance sheet, they're tightening monetary conditions. Uh, but you see a lot of investors flowing into long dated bonds. Um, and you said that the market expects for rate cuts next year. Um, do you think like they're kind of looking through like uh, the potential recession and already planning on the Fed cutting and them doing more stimulative things? Um, they're they're the most overweight bonds investors are since the global financial crisis. And for me, it's like, you're basically betting on a Fed cut, but if we are in this environment of inflation, you know, bonds aren't necessarily um, gonna protect you over the long term. Uh, you, you're going to want maybe other assets like that are scarce, real-world assets in that um, environment to provide that safe haven. But you have all these investors flowing into bonds right now. Um, what do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that they're the most overweight since the global financial crisis, and the Treasury bonds are set to maybe have the third consecutive year of losses for the first time in its history?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the bond market's always interesting, compared to stock market and other and and some other uh, markets where in the bond market, when the price goes down, people become, you know, demand more of the asset, which is very different from, you know, stocks or other sort of considered risky assets where the price goes down and people are less typically less interested in buying the asset. So it's kind of a funny, you know, it's kind of a funny dynamic that exists in the bond market. And that's because people, frankly, out of out of uh, convention, look at at those assets based on a, on a yield rather than based upon uh, a price, right? Same way. If you looked at stocks based upon yield, you'd think that they didn't make sense today. You know, they were the yield was very low today. And when they sell off, the yield would be very high. It's just not how people think about it. And so um, I, I think what you're seeing, I, I think in a lot of ways for the bond market is um, like once again, and we've seen a few patterns of this over the course of the last last 18 months, investors are getting ahead of themselves. Where they're positioning for the recession without recognizing the steps that it's going to take to get to recession and what those steps are is given that we have an economy that's that's too that where nominal growth is too high third quarter gdp growth nominal gdp growth was eight percent right like i mean that's way too high given the feds mandate so the way we're going to slow the economy down is first interest rates are going to rise Those long-term interest rates rising are then going to create a a deterioration in stock prices. That deterioration in stock prices is then going to create a weakening of demand. That weakening of demand will then kick off lower earnings. Lower earnings will lead to lower employment, lower employment, lower wages, lower wages, less nominal spending, and finally inflation cools you know fully cools in the economy on a structural basis could tactically change based upon supply issues but i'm talking about on a more structural basis the way the fed Mm -hmm. looks at it and so that's the order of operations but you don't buy the bond like you don't buy bonds today because you have to go through the process of first the bond yields have to rise Mm -hmm. in order to slow the economy right Mm -hmm. so step one bonds rise bond yields rise step two the economy slows down and i think people are just getting ahead of themselves and to be clear they've done this like five times in the last 18 months where a bunch of cuts get priced into the two-year going you know, into the short rate market and then the economy is mostly fine and then those cuts come out and bond yields rise and it's just like over and over and over again and i think it's because just going back to that more secular story people are very used to the type of macro environment that they most of their careers have been in which is when the fed has been yeah. super responsive to negative growth shocks Right, because there was no inflation problem, but today there is an inflation problem, and their uh, reaction function is just totally different than what people have seen in their careers.
1: Um, it, it's it's almost like a Pavlonian response. You know, this is where we go. This is what we're used to. We're going to go into long dated bonds. Um, it's just it's. I guess where it's difficult for me to to kind of conceptualize because if what you say is true and yields are going to go up, um, it's just going to worsen. The fiscal picture again i know i have to go back to that because like it it increases that interest expense even higher um and then that causes more inflationary pressures but then if if the if the asset prices fall because the bond yields are going up that's going to reduce um tax receipts uh, because we have this financialized economy and so that just worsens the fiscal picture even more and so how can people not expect them to go in because like you said they can either choose to reduce their spending. Um, tighten the belts, or they can go in and provide more, you know, stimulus, as you put it. And it just seems to me that like that's the likely scenario. And so investors are going to want to maybe prepare for that. And again, like, long dated bonds in that environment, I mean, it's going to be not exactly where you'd want to be, in my opinion. Like, how do, how do you kind of... Well,
0: well I, think, I think there's a through time story here, which is that bond yields rising which would then kick off the necessary slowing of the economy mm-hmm. would then sow the seeds of bond yields then falling right and uh-huh. so i think i think that's the dynamic that plays out through time that mm-hmm. dynamic doesn't look in the in the in the sort of medium term doesn't look great for bonds because you have to have that rise before um before you have uh before you have the slowing of the economy but the you know in some ways the 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 real asset that looks bad and through that scenario is stocks. because right now, stocks, like just think about this on a on a longer term basis. like long-term bonds, the price of long-term bonds is down fifty to sixty percent depending on how you measure it. Yeah. stocks are at all-time highs, right? So one of those two assets is reflecting the increased tightening of monetary conditions in the economy, and one of those assets is not pricing. Mm-hmm. increased tightening and in monetary conditions like you know some people say oh well the you know the stock market's running at you know a bit elevated PEs relative to the last 10 15 20 years and failing to acknowledge the fact that real interest rates right have gone up 300 basis points like the PE today should be reflective the yield today On stocks, which is the inverse of the PE, should be reflective of the fact that overall interest rates have risen in the economy, but instead the yield hasn't changed and risk-free interest rates in the economy have risen considerably. And so I think what you're probably going to have is that that pain is probably going to be felt more in the stock market when the cycle eventually turns than it is
1: felt in the bond market. Yeah. I've seen that, that chart where it's like the jaws where, you know, it's looking at the stock market and the bond market and you're like, right, totally different to change here. Right. Um, and,
0: and, and remember, I mean, this, this is like, you know, finance 101, like one uh, like bonds are in the stocks. And the reason why that is, is because if you think about a stock, all a stock is, is, is earnings discounted by discount rates mm-hmm. and bonds and discount rates are risk-free interest rates. And so if what you have just in a very simple model is that your earnings are relatively you know they're growing at whatever rate they're growing at but discount rates go you know real real interest rates real discount rates have gone from negative 100 basis points to positive 200 basis points that's a huge impact on the present value of those future earnings cash flows that basically hasn't been reflected at all in the equity market in the cycle
1: so you, you'd think that that's going to change, right? You'd think that stocks would fall um, if the discount rate continues to rise. It it just it, I think about portfolio construction because it's that 60-40 portfolio. It's this relationship between bonds and stocks that have existed over the last uh, few decades um, where they kind of move inversely to one another. And that kind of helps balance things um, but I, you know I just read a report from AQR capital management looking at periods where that relationship changes where bonds and stock prices start moving together and what they found was rising inflation is when that happens you know they talk about you know how inflation reduces the values of the bonds fixed nominal cash flows and then um, although stocks you know you have a claim on real cash flows you know that rising inflation has been associated historically with falling stock prices as well. So you don't have that protection. Like you don't have that shock absorber that bonds once had in that environment of rising inflation. And so how does this change things for you? If we are entering this period, when you're thinking about diversification, if this bond stock relationship has changed, um, you know, how do you provide that like risk adjusted return in, in a portfolio?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the a lot of people hold it what's called the 60-40 portfolio, it's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. The reason why they hold that is for the, for uh, the points that you just highlighted, which is that if, particularly if you look at the last couple of decades, bonds have been a good diversifier to stocks. When stocks go down, bonds have typically rallied and vice versa. And so by holding both of them, because you'd expect both of them to go up over time and they're sort of negatively related to each other, that helps reduce the volatility in your portfolio. But as you highlight, that isn't always the case. There are times when inflation is a more dominant effect. There are also times when other dynamics, for instance, geopolitical concerns are a more dominant effect in your portfolio. And so one of the things I like to to say is, you know, the 60-40 portfolio is all in on disinflationary, strong growth and peace. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that set of things, Right. What have we had over the last 20 or 30, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years? We've had disinflationary, strong growth and peace. It's been a great time, right, to hold 60 40. But I wouldn't necessarily assume uh, that those things are going to play out into the future. Right. I mean, I certainly think yeah. uh, there's good reasons to raise concern that the level of peace that we've seen over most of our lifetimes may not be the case in the future. And similarly, this sort of disinflationary dynamic that we've seen may not play out, you know, is likely shifting towards a more inflationary structural dynamic Mm -hmm. and the high growth that we've seen from high, high labor force growth and strong productivity may also not play out in the future. And so if you look at that, you got to start to look for assets that do better in those other environments, which are assets like tips, gold and diversified commodities.
1: Yeah. I remember you shared a chart that said that 71% of financial advisors have little to no exposure to gold. And I also saw saw a chart from the Bank of America recently that compared the prices of uh, real assets versus financial assets and how they're basically at historic lows. I don't know if you saw that one. Um, And so what do you make of that? It seems like to me, it just screams like a contrarian bet that there's some kind of mispricing there. Um, that could be opportunity for investors, um, especially in this new environment that you just mentioned.
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, we can talk about gold, which I think is. Yeah, let's talk um, about gold. Yeah, let's talk about gold. Um, <laughs> you know, I think most people, you start talking about gold, and they think that you're like a crazy person. You know, who wants to lock themselves in a small cabin in the woods with your guns <laughs> and your water, and gold. you know, <laughs> right, bury the gold in the backyard, like. You know, gold is a financial asset that's existed for thousands of years. The property, the return properties of it are relatively well known. And um, yet sort of no one looks at it. And it's surprising because if you look at the empirical evidence, here's a very simple, uh, simple fact, empirical fact, which is during periods, 12 month periods where stocks are down, gold outperforms bonds 60 percent of the time. Wow. Think about that. Gold outperforms bonds during stock, stock drawdowns 60% of the time. And, and that's not just, you know, back in the 70s that if you did that same thing from 2000, if you did the same thing from, you know, over the last five years, all of, you know, a bunch of different time frames, a bunch of different periods. And the reason why that is, is that when those stock drawdowns happen and they're a function either of inflationary concerns or geopolitical concerns often what you'll see is that gold does better than bonds in that circumstance. And so, I think it'll, you know, it you know you say this and advisors sort of, you know, advisors and allocators they sort of look at you like, "Oh, why would you ever bring that up?" And I'm like, "Look, whether you believe like gold, you know, is one thing or another or you you think I'm a crazy person, just like look at the empirical evidence. If I told you there was an asset that was a better diversifier 60% of the time, like Zero would not be your opening bid for the allocation to that asset, right? Yet right. that is essentially the bid by ninety-five percent of investors is to hold essentially zero gold.
1: Yeah, it's shocking to me. I mean, if you are looking for risk-adjusted returns, and if what you said is true in terms of drawdowns and gold performs sixty percent of the time better than bonds, I mean, how are people so under uh, allocated to this thing? It's it's wild to me. Um, when you when you well, look, at I, gold- I, I mean, I think I think the key
0: the key the key issue. The key issue that I think people have is when they think about financial assets, they think about yielding financial assets.
1: Right. They want that.
0: I I probably don't have to talk to you about this, but I think that's a real thing, which is they say, well, if it doesn't have yield, it doesn't have value. And no, that's not right. Just because it doesn't have yield doesn't mean it doesn't have value. In particular, you know, gold, the way you think about gold is it's just non-interest-bearing money, right? It's just just a a type of money that's non-interest-bearing for which it's not a claim to any particular claim on any particular individual or institution right that's it's it's um i don't want to say it can't be uh it 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 can't be um inflated away because of course you, there's some gold supply that comes into the market over time but the supply is relatively constrained relative to the total above ground stock of it and so it's basically a non-interest bearing money with a highly constrained let's say supply element to it at any point in time and so that, that, I think that just people have, I think investors and advisors have a hard time recognizing that an asset without yield can have value, but it can, right? It can have value based upon what, you know, how it trades as a con- contra currency for investors.
1: Yeah, it doesn't have yield because there's no counterparty risk, right? That's because the, there's, part- yeah, that's the, right. That's right. There's no counterparty risk. Um, yeah. And then the gold, uh, you know, I just think, I think about what you said in terms of you know why inv- investors they're so uh, you know obsessed with this yield that they don't kind of think about these other risks and they don't think about the cross asset correlations of how it kind of fit into a portfolio it has a different value proposition and um i was wondering you know when you think about gold allocations do you think about like counterparty risk at all like when you saw these bank failures happen in the spring Um, is that a reason why you, you want to allocate the gold? And when do you do have exposure, do you buy actual spot gold or do you do like the gold ETF or things like that?
0: Yeah. Well, I think you know often folks, uh, and this is probably where I veer away from the like, uh, guys talking gold, like on the radio, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, saturday afternoons um you know like look, look gold is a financial asset it, as i said it's a return property it's relatively clear if we're in a circumstance where you're really needing to hoard physical gold like i don't Not know a, got good. Bigger, Not a good, bigger world. fish to fry in my in my sense <laughs> um in my view uh so i mean i just i i hold it through etf structures yeah. which are fine Absolutely. iau gld uh, they're liquid they're reasonably priced you know they're as efficient as it comes um, but there are there are, you know, for the I'd say for those who are a little more risk averse, there are other options that are out there, whether it's personal physical gold, which has some limitations because you got to physically protect it and you could lose it and stuff like that. But there are other options like, you know, uh, the Perth Mint and and other um, and Swiss savings vehicles that will hold the tagged physical gold in vaults in various jurisdictions that you know if you really wanted to protect yourself you would probably want to hold those in a diverse set of jurisdictions uh hold the physical gold tagged in a diverse set of jurisdictions in the event of uh more significant concern you get pretty good diversification uh you know in australia and switzerland and canada and yeah. stuff like that but you know now we're going to that now, now we're going down the rabbit hole,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, don't the rabbit hole. <laughs> I uh you know, you mentioned a great point. Like the yield thing is such a holdup for people and um, they can't understand why gold would have value uh, because of its monetary properties, right? You know, it's right. like you brought up kind of its scarcity. It's its resistance to inflation. Are you surprised though? Like, cause the Fed has raised rates and that's kind of a relationship, right? So since gold doesn't um, offer a yield, it usually performs better in like when real yields are lower, um, right. and when they're higher, you know that's been a relationship over time that's pretty uh, well known. But it seems like gold has kind of held up um, in this environment. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like bouncing on the door of 2000. Are you surprised that it's performed well as the Fed has you know jacked interest rates up?
0: Yeah, I, as you say, the best way to think about gold is not interest bearing money, and so when interest bearing money goes up, yields go up. You'd expect gold to underperform. I think the challenge with gold and and why people often don't really fully understand its price action is it's also a tail risk hedge both to inflation but also uh you know tail risk of inflation either very high inflation or very low inflation it's also a geopolitical tail risk hedge and so uh, if you look at the the drivers of the market over the course of the last, say, two years, which is when we've had that period of meaningful interest rate rises, it's coincided with a substantial increase in demand from uh, central banks uh, who yeah. are who recognize the challenges, the geopolitical challenges with holding fiat money and, in particular, holding uh, bonds of Western countries using Western uh, broker uh, custodians, and so. Um, and, you know, the fact that those can be seized or uh, frozen and things like that. And so what you're seeing now, basically, frankly, it's two of the biggest suppliers in the in the world, typically, which are the Russians and the Chinese, basically taking all the gold and putting it into their central bank. And then also even going beyond that and going out and buying more physical gold that's getting imported into those economies, physical monetary gold. And so, you know, I think that's an, inter- an important factor. And it really does speak to the fact that there is – that is a geopolitical – like, you know, the geopolitical risk, you can view geopolitical risk in a bunch of different ways. I can view – you know, Westerners can view it vis-a-vis the Russians and the Chinese, but also the Russians and the Chinese can view geopolitical risk vis-a-vis Westerners, right? Mm -hmm. Those are two different things. And so um, both will seek to find, you know, non-interest-bearing – money that has you know that is not a claim on a foreign foreign power in times where they're concerned about geopolitical stress and that's basically what we've been seeing i think the thing that's actually pretty amazing is the gold rally has happened and there's been no retail participation retail mm-hmm. has been selling through this gold rally so imagine a world where you get interest rates are falling the dollar is falling and you get some retail participation I think it creates a really interesting mix of supportive dynamics for gold, you know, over a three to five year time frame.
1: I mean, I agree. I agree. You know, and I have to go uh, to Bitcoin a little bit here because, you know, I, my personal view is that it has very similar value proposition of Bitcoin. Everything that you just mentioned, except it kind of improves on some of gold shortcomings, like it's portability, it's divisibility, it's auditability. I know exactly how much Bitcoin supply there's going to be today, seven years from now 70 years from now whereas gold you don't really know how much supply is here today you can estimate it as well as um like you said earlier the supply of gold fluctuates with increased demand as they increase production whereas bitcoin supply is fixed you're not gonna it doesn't fluctuate with any increase in demand and so i think it's a very attractive value proposition it's similar to gold it kind of has this other growth profile of a tech stock because it's a young. Very young gold, Um, and so I would love to just hear your thoughts. Like, you know, how much have you looked into Bitcoin? How much research have you done? What's maybe some things that are holding you back from from allocating to Bitcoin? Just like I would love to just hear your thoughts.
0: Yeah, well, a little bit of um, a tale is, you know, my my job uh, at Bridgewater. One of my jobs was to run the foreign exchange book, Uh, and um, and so uh, about ten years ago. Uh, I looked at you know I, it was basically like let's go look at Bitcoin and see you know is it do you think about it like a currency basically right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know at the time I looked at it and obviously ten years ago it was pretty different it was tiny uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it was tiny um, still is you know I don't know it was trading in the hundreds I think at the time when I looked at it and I basically you know I looked at the price action I looked at the drivers of it and I said look doesn't look like a macro driven asset like I talked about at the beginning you know. Part of different investors have different edges. Understanding the macro economy and how it connects to macro assets is the edge that I've, you know, that I've developed over time. And so I looked at it and said, doesn't, you know, not consistent with my edge might be good asset might be a bad asset. I don't know, but I don't have any edge in trading this asset. So got it. Um, starting 10 years ago. And what I'd say is, you know, my, my view on it as a macro asset continues to be, you know, largely the same today. What I'd say is that um is that it's probably from my perspective, and now this is this is gonna be a, a, a trad fi uh perspective <laughs> yeah, you know, no, that may or may not make the 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 crowds uh <laughs> uh happy.
1: It's, a um, safe space. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> you
0: know, I think in a lot of ways it, it looks like um a growth venture type asset, which is that it you know it's a Um, uh, one, one, uh, one, uh, Bitcoin, uh, person that I talked to, um, regularly on, on Twitter about macro and other stuff, he said, the thing is the technology, right? That's what he said. He said, the thing is the, the thing about Bitcoin is the technology. And I think that was actually really insightful because what it highlighted is there's a lot of folks who want to make a macro investment case for it, particularly to try and connect with you know, traditional investors. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that empirically, it just doesn't quite meet the hurdle either in time because it just hasn't been around that long or in sort of day-to-day evidence of certain claims around its macro properties. But it does absolutely make the case of being a innovative technology with a set of, you know, properties and and use cases that, um, that, you know, may be, may be, Meaningful in the future are somewhat meaningful today, but maybe even more meaningful in the future. And so in some ways, I think about it much more like a growth venture stage investment, where buying Bitcoin is essentially like buying, uh, uh, you know, like a small share of, uh, you know, it's like buying a small share of the overall system, like, uh, yeah, uh, Lynn Alden okay. said the other day, yeah. buying Bitcoin is as if you could buy like a share of the internet back in, you know, the 90s or something like that. Correct. It's like the same. It's the same concept, which I think is compelling. And so when I think about the asset and I think about what role it has in the portfolio, it has the role that like a large, you know, a large venture, a growth style investment should have, which is, you know, it should. Those things have those those investments have a role in a portfolio. But you also have to be prudent. Like, you certainly would not want to put 100% of your capital into, you know, Carvana or Instacart or, you know, DoorDash or, you know, like all those. You wouldn't want to put 100% of your assets into yeah. it because it might be successful and it might not be successful.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, like I've said that, you know, Bitcoin has a, the characteristics of gold, but, you know, the the profile of like a venture bet. I mean, that's it's very true to look at it that way. And Bitcoin is a technology. I wonder, you know, you said that, would you like to just see more data? Like, is that one of the things that kind of holds you back? Like, we only have about 14, 15 years of how this thing's traded. Do you want to see how it performs in like different uh, investing environments before you maybe get uh, any more conviction with it as a macro asset? And then the other thing I want to ask is like the correlations. Like, wouldn't an uncorrelated asset not respond the same way to certain, like, Drivers, I would say, like it would kind of move differently. Um, isn't that kind of what you would expect to see with an uncorrelated asset? Yeah. So I think, I guess these two things connect to each other. I, I think the question
0: is whether thinking about it as a macro asset, right? What you want to be able to start to connect is you want to connect macroeconomic outcomes to return properties of the asset. And so my sort of like view on it as a macro asset particularly i should say as a contra currency asset is i would want to see more clarity between um the the performance uh you know certain issues related to contract when you would expect contra currencies to perform well let's say mm-hmm. when geopolitical conditions tensions rise or um or when interest rates fall right because it's a non-interest bearing money like I'd want to see more of a relationship between those macro properties and it serving as a contra currency. Right. And instead what it looks like, and, and, and look, I'm not just like dismissing this at hand. Like I'm,
1: no, I I'm looking
0: at the market action. I'm thinking about this. You know, I, you know, I, I, the funny thing is like, you know, I'm rooting for how many uncorrelated or lowly correlated assets are there out in the world? Heck, if Bitcoin could be one of those assets. That would be great, right? Like I'm not, yeah, I know. You know, so it's not like it, 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 I'm. I have some like personal, you know, uh, uh, personal thing against it. I'm just looking at the empirical evidence, and I don't see that connection that's tight enough. And instead, what I see is, as you say, it's it's lowly correlated to macro assets. But in the same way that something like a venture growth asset is lowly correlated, whether Square is successful or not, is not really a macro, dy- macro dynamic or whether, um, you know, is it Instacart or DoorDash or Uber Eats or this or that, right from a technology standpoint, isn't really a macro dynamic, it's a micro dynamic. And so what I see is that the Bitcoin, at least, is trading on these micro dynamics. Is there an ETF? Is there not an ETF? You know, someone issues a new coin back by by Bitcoin or a new, whatever, stable coin back by the coin or this or that. It's all sort of in the micro, which means that if its macro properties are, let's say, 10 or 20% of its drivers are macro properties and the rest, 80%, is idiosyncratic, then what you observe in terms of its price is something that looks idiosyncratic relative to the macro dynamics that are going on, so I think that's where it is right now. Um, it, you know, time will tell whether it's a successful technology. Um, you know, and betting on technologies, you know, deserve, as I said, some part of your portfolio, but not, uh, but certainly you wouldn't want to go all in on that portfolio if you're thinking about creating something that's diverse.
1: Yeah, and like that's a, you know, there's a lot of research out there looking at position sizing. Basically, is is so important with an asset like Bitcoin. Um, specifically like the, the volatility of it. Like we we have the Nakamoto portfolio, which is interesting because you know, we've looked at how Bitcoin can improve risk adjusted returns in a lot of different portfolios. And it kind of shows that like 1%, 2%, 5% um can improve the risk adjusted returns of these portfolios. So maybe you could check that out. I don't you know I think maybe yeah, I understand that.
0: Yeah. And one of the challenges with that is um the 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 return component is the real question right the correlation part of it is a more is more clear in the terms of like how much is it looks idiosyncratic relative to um uh idiosyncratic relative to a macro driver and so its portfolio characteristics from a correlation standpoint are relatively clear the real question is is it going to be a successful technology right that that's that's the real question and so I mean, this goes without saying. If the return of the asset, if the return of Bitcoin was negative <laughs> over the last five years, then it would not have been a good backward-looking portfolio uh, asset to include, right?
1: Right. Um, which it has you know. to, yeah. Which you know, the success of Bitcoin kind of relies on its security as well as maintaining its scarcity—the twenty-one million, which is kind of baked into the security and the decentralization. And so, it takes kind of an understanding of of how the technology functions to better understand how the probabilities of it being successful into the future. Um, I think it's. Yeah. And, and,
0: and I think yeah. as a person who studied a lot of alt monies in my career, more, more so than probably most uh, traditional finance folks, um, you know, alt monies, uh, some are successful, some emerge, many, many fail. Um, and so you just have to recognize that there's a, a range of outcomes there. yeah. Um, and to be I, clear, if, if there's a 1% probability, there's a 1% probability that Bitcoin is the primary way in which we engage in international monetary transactions 20 years from now. Well, you know, like that's a, you know, that's a pretty good option value to have, <laughs> right? So, right, you know, in the same way, if you bought, if you looked at Uber and you said, what are the, what's the probability that I'll never take a cab again, and the <laughs> entire taxi industry will be to- totally revamped by it, right? So it's not to say that these are bad option value, that it's a bad option value, bad. It's just that the characteristics of it are not consistent with a macro asset. The characteristic asset class, maybe it's a better way of saying it. it's not a macro asset class, at least at this point, it is, it may be once it gets more widely adopted, etc., And it it matures, but it's not yet, but it could very well be a good, it could very well be a good bet. That part of it, like, you know, I'm, from my perspective, I, I'd say I'm, I'm humble enough to know that I'm not sure. And, and and that's not, that is not expressing opinion, positive or negative. And I'm not humble enough to not know whether 36,000 is the right number or 15 or 60, right, is the right number in terms of value in that option
1: yeah no it's uh we say like probably get off zero is probably the right move that's probably the one allocation that's incorrect right now because of the the option that you you mentioned even uh hell finney was like the second person really to start transaction in bitcoin and he just has a famous quote back then he's like yeah you might you might want to get some just in case this uh (laughs) this works out right right. and and that's that's the option that's right just in case uh right and um,
0: and in the same way you might invest in a hundred You know, or 20 venture backed, you know, technology uh, opportunities, right? Because one of them may be the next, you know, Uber, et cetera, right? Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think um, once you understand Bitcoin's network effects and some of the things that make it scarce, um, you start to understand like its uniqueness and maybe how the odds of it winning, if it doesn't win, I just don't see it. Anything else winning in terms of you know a decentralized money? I feel like it's a zero to one event that can only happen one time, and um, it might fail. Like you know, like you said, there, there's risks here. There's there's probabilities that you have to think about. You know, critical bugs, and you know, it's just software when it comes down to it. But I think when you start to learn that stuff, you're like, okay, this might be this might be the one. The one thing that I, I think we talk about in Bitcoin a lot. You bring up idiosyncratic. Uh, drivers versus the macro drivers. And right now, you know, Bitcoin is growing and you're going to see that idiosyncratic moves based on short-term, like the ETF, whether that'll happen, like these speculative, more speculative reasons for buying Bitcoin. But then you see this like investor base growing with each cycle that actually views this as a store of value, as a digital gold-like. And you see that kind of grow over time and you can kind of see it in the open network of the holding, the holding behavior of the Bitcoin holders because it's all open source and transparent. And you see that like investor base growing in terms of viewing this thing as a macro asset. And as education grows around it, I think you're going to see that grow. And this is just my personal opinion. You're going to see that grow in terms of a driver of Bitcoin's price and the idiosyncratic reasons drop over time if Bitcoin continues to grow and continues to be successful with its adoption. But I think you're right to say that. I mean, you're not wrong to say that there are idiosyncratic factors right now that are driving Bitcoin. There's there's speculators who come into Bitcoin as the price moves. They're not buying this as a macro asset. But I think people like me and others do view it as a macro asset. And I think that that's going to continue to grow as debasement continues and things like that. Um, and so I think it's just... The one thing that I wanted to just end with was... You work in ETFs, you you turned your focus to them. You said you use technology now, and in in the ETF space with Unlimited. I love to hear what you're building now um, over there. Why you decide to turn to the ETF, and maybe we can get into like how you think a spot Bitcoin ETF might change things there, or if you think it does change things. Um, I would love to just hear your thoughts on Unlimited ETFs and maybe the spot Bitcoin ETF.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I, I won't. Uh, belabor exactly what we're doing uh, at unlimited too much other than to say you know basically we've built technology that allows us to replicate uh how hedge fund managers are positioned um it, you know in close to real time and then we take that understanding translate it into long and short positions in in um in liquid securities which back an etf so basically the idea and because etfs are you know, available to everyone uh, and because we're using technology, we can offer it at a much lower cost and for everyone in the ETF wrapper. And so that's the, that's the gist of what, uh, of what we're doing. I think the ETF question is a particularly interesting one um, because, you know, I came from a traditional sort of LP limited mm-hmm. partnership structure experience. And I was looking around for, you know, what is, what is the best product for the investor and unambiguously Uh, ETFs are the best structure for the investor. Um, And the reason why that is, is because they're essentially a tax loophole. Um, They're liquid, they're transparent, and essentially a tax loophole because what it allows you to do is it allows you under the hood of the ETF, from the investor's perspective, you buy an ETF, right? It's got a ticker. It looks like a stock. If you hold it for more than a year, typically you only pay capital gains tax at the time of sale. But under the hood in the ETF, there could be all sorts of different transactions And what the ETF allows you to do is to essentially wash what would otherwise be short-term and long-term taxable gains Mm -hmm. uh, using something called custom create redeems, which basically allows uh, the operator of the ETF to reset the cost basis of the underlying securities in the product. And what that means is that you can rebalance between assets. like If you you rebalance between stocks and bonds in your personal account and you sell, sell stocks when they've had a gain then you have to take a. You have a taxable
1: tax event consequences. Right? Yeah,
0: right. You have tax consequences. The beautiful thing about an ETF is you can essentially do that uh, in the ETF wrapper without any tax consequences. So maintain the, on the back end.
1: So that's kind of what the, that's right. Got it. Okay.
0: That's right. And so, I mean, look, ETF nerds, you know, we, no, we could do a no, totally case. another podcast on, <laughs> on the nerdy aspects of the ETF. But the basic point is that it's a tax loophole and it's a better structure for the investor because you have the ability to sell the asset on the secondary market whenever you want, right? If you very liquid. It's totally liquid, intraday liquid, these markets particularly now like over the last 5 or 10 years. They've really deepened, you know, like Nasdaq uh, a huge or uh, NYSE like something like a third of their income, a third of the business of NYSE is in ETFs. So they have huge commitments to make sure these products are sold and transacted super efficiently, and they've done a lot of work to do that. Um, And in addition, actually, in the ETF wrapper, there was a bunch of regulatory uh, changes that occurred uh, right around covid. So they people kind of didn't even pay attention to them, which actually now allows you to run pretty sophisticated strategies in the ETF wrapper. Um, as long as you maintain what I'd call institutional quality risk controls, which you should have anyway if you're running uh, an active strategy. And so actually, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot more active managers like ourselves bringing sophisticated investment strategies in that ETF wrapper. Uh, and the great thing about it is everyone can buy it, right? And you can buy it. You can go buy an ETF with $10, right? That That's, that's, that's yeah. the incredible thing about it. You can have $10 or $10 million. And you both have equal access to the same you don't have to be an asset. accredited investor you don't have to be accredited investor you don't have to you know you don't have to have a huge account you can go on Robinhood and buy these things or public.com or whatever you can go and buy them you know on your phone at whatever size is appropriate for you which I think is great you know it's totally yeah. talk about democratizing you know financial assets like that that is an incredible democratization Uh, So it helps,
1: so it helps you guys because you can implement these strategies in the wrapper in a tax efficient way is what I'm understanding. And then it helps the user, the, you know, the clients, because it improves accessibility to allow them to get access to these strategies that typically they wouldn't have access to. That's right. That's right.
0: And and I also think the other, the other thing I'd emphasize too, is uh, the transparency benefit, which is when you run an ETF, if you want to know what's in our ETF, you just you know, or any ETF, you just go to their the page and it and it tells you exactly what was in it the day before, right? There's no you, know, you invest in an LP, like a limited partnership, a fund, even hmm. a mutual fund. You literally have no literally no idea what's going on, right? Like <laughs> maybe they'll send you a statement. Maybe you'll get transparency every half year, year, all sorts of things like that with an ETF it's great. If you have questions, if you don't un- if you want to understand what's going on in the product, just go look at the holdings. It's a, it's a beautiful thing for the everyday investor to gain confidence that they're that what what they're investing in is what they believe that they're investing in, right? That's the beautiful thing about the ETF structure is it it really is in a lot of ways the best structure for the investor, for the everyday investor and also the best structure for the manager to operate in. Um which is, yeah, which
1: is, I didn't know that. I didn't know about the the tax uh, efficiencies that the. It's just a tax loophole. Yeah, yeah just uh, a tax loophole. I didn't know that. That's that's really is. interesting, and um, it makes a lot of sense what you guys are doing at Unlimited. Then, I mean, from, from both standpoints, from yep. it seems like a win-win situation. Absolutely. I have to ask you because you do focus on it, like the spot Bitcoin ETF. Not that you don't have to talk about the odds of it happening. Just like <laughs> let's, let's assume, let's assume it happens. Just like kind of gold got an ETF. Like what do you think would be some of the the benefits of that you know for investors that maybe it doesn't exist right now in the Bitcoin market if there is a Bitcoin ETF out there um, what are some of the benefits that you see that uh, coming to investors or or Bitcoin or like do you think it's a big deal as a lot of people are making it out to be?
0: Well, I think there's a combination of things one uh, you know the 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 uh, the accessibility of Bitcoin for a, let's call it a more traditional investor who is investing through a a traditional investment platform, you know, their, their, their sort of old school brokerage account, the, the accessibility is not that great. Right. Um, I mean, I guess a lot of these, a lot of these places will block even buying the, uh, the Bitcoin Trust, whatever gtpc yeah, GBTC. Yep. GBTC. I always say that wrong. Um, <laughs> and so that, they, like, they'll block it because it's not like technically an ETF or a technically a publicly traded, secu- you know, a liquid publicly traded security. And so, um, you know, I think by creating the ETF, particularly, I should say ones that are institutionally backed, like a you know, a, a big these big names actually issuing these ETFs. Odds are you'll get them on these platforms approved and accessible for the everyday investor for the everyday investor using traditional brokerages to to invest in those products um the other thing i'd say is it it i imagine it will meaningfully bring down costs, right because right now what's what's the what's the uh fees on uh gbtc like uh very 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 high I mean, that's, very high.
1: Ridiculous.
0: that's ridiculous. yeah it's ridiculous you know?
1: <laughs> It's absurd it's absurd That is ridiculous. Basically like putting a you know Bitcoin in a trust have it right. sit there like it's right, a lot right, of work right, right?
0: <laughs> And so I mean I, you know the the proliferation of these products probably there's probably a lot more products filed than would ever reasonably plausibly get launched. but you know you have the benefit of let's say you have five or ten of these things in the same way we've seen you know in the gold market, the the subsequent gold ETF launches have been cheaper. Uh, than you know the initial GLD one or I don't know like EEM versus the Vanguard ones. I mean, hopefully someday you know Vanguard will offer a, a Bitcoin ETF, a spot Bitcoin ETF and you know it'll cost five basis points. and that'll be really good for, for consumers, right? I mean, like there, there, are, there are many things in this world that are uncertain. Uh, the returns of assets, the ability to generate alpha, those things are uncertain. Mm-hmm. Fees are certain. Right, and so you can lower the fees. You're no matter what in a better position than if you didn't lower the fees, right? (laughs) Like, like that is certain, right? Lower fees are better for the investor, no matter what. And so, I think that's going to be really good for a lot of investors.
1: Yeah. And I would say the lowest fees is to just take self custody where you have zero fees. So I know, no, I know, but in the no party it, risk. I, I had but, to say but, it. I I, I, uh,
0: I I'm not surprised you said it, but it's not <laughs> it's not necessarily uh as obvious as it is um yeah. It is. I I remember uh, as I said 10 years ago trying to by Bitcoin, it was like, where exactly do does one go? Ten, this exactly, ten, no, yeah, it's a little Nothing easier now. I, I, I,
1: I, <laughs> no, it's uh, you know, way, it's something. But, it's something the industry has to really focus on, though, is is how to build it in a way that makes things easier. How to build products that improves the UX and and UI for people to come in and, and feel a little bit. It's easier for them, right? And so that's right. on that's on us as an industry to do that. But um, and, and the and the safety, you know, I mean, and obviously, the safety, yep. Uh, part yep. of the,
0: part, I mean, part of the reason why you'd buy it through a big institutional manager is because, um, you know, if something happened, they're spending a lot of time making sure that it gets, that the coins get custodied in a in a good way, in a relative, you know, in a safe way. But in the event that something happened, right, and we actually saw this in the financial crisis, when there were certain assets that, let's say, didn't, you know, defaulted in ways that were totally unexpected, The institutions typically make the investors whole in those circumstances, and so I think that is a layer of protection um, Mm -hmm. that would exist through, uh, you know, an ETF type structure issued by a by a big financial institution. That they would likely, you would likely take that sort of, um, I don't know, you call it hack risk, close to zero in a way that you know, if you're. You'd be
1: trusting them, and that, but there would maybe be some safeguards and you know, that's what we say. We say like, you know, personal responsibility. That's kind of the cost of having self-sovereignty over your, your, your wealth. And you got to trust yourself. You got to make sure that you know what you're doing and you know, have your security right. And the, the trade-off is that you actually own it. And so personal responsibility, that's kind of the, the thing, but I think you're exactly right. The ETF, the accessibility, um, it'll create lower fees compared to these other products on the market that are just killing people with fees. And, um, you know, I disagree with 2% everything. Two is think. crazy. It is just, it is just I crazy. I know it's not like they're like for moving. not, like do, for not doing, we're not doing anything. They're not. It's digital, so they just, <laughs> they just
0: moved it over. Every time, every time I see those, you know, they have ads like all over the Oculus and in, in New York. Oh yeah, I saw that at the airport like, in DC. And I'm like, the fees are too high. Yeah, like if 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 your if your asset is being advertised in like high traffic areas of, you know, public transit, (laughs) your fees are too high, right? (laughs) You either have too much venture money or your fees are too high, right? They make 2% on,
1: on, uh, I think it's like 640,000 Bitcoin in that trust. They make 2% a year. So it's been a cash cow for them, but uh, I think it's going to change when these ETFs come. Uh, Hopefully they get converted. They're going to need their AUM to get jacked up if they want to keep their profit. That's right, to keep those those margins going. Yeah, but uh, thank you so much, Bob. I mean, you've been very gracious with your time, and um, uh, really appreciate your thoughts, your wealth of knowledge on Twitter. So, why don't you tell people where they can follow you um, or what you guys are doing at Unlimited before we? Yeah, go yeah. Over. If
0: if you uh, if you found this taste of uh, macro perspective at all interesting, uh, definitely <laughs> check me out on Twitter at Bobby Unlimited. Very active there, um, and if you want to learn more about what we're doing at Unlimited. Uh, definitely check out unlimitedfunds.com.
1: Cool. And Bob, let us know if uh, if you start to see things in the data that show Bitcoin's more of a macro driver. I, make sure I you, will. You let I us will. know. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I uh, turned <laughs> your a little bit. <laughs> but thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you have a wonderful Thanksgiving with you and the family. Okay. You too. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Bob. All right. Bye. Well, I thought that was a great show. Um, it's always interesting to hear different perspectives on Bitcoin uh, to kind of learn where uh, people are kind of seeing this thing, especially with Bob. He has a lot of experience uh, managing money. I thought it was really interesting what they're building over at Unlimited. I didn't know about some of those uh, nuances of an ETF as like a technology that's that's superior for, for the managers themselves. Um, so if you liked it, go check, go follow Bob. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, if you like this show, like it, comment, uh, subscribe. Subscribe. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to Swan Signal. Uh, Next week, we got an interview with a a CEO of a very large mining company. And so it's one of my favorite interviews that I've done a long time. Um, It was in person, so it's a little bit different. Uh, So I'm really excited to show you guys that next week. um, And I hope everybody listening has a wonderful holidays. Uh, Go spend time with family, go eat some turkey. And before we go, make sure you check out Pacific Bitcoin. Uh, This is the chance to lock in those early bird tickets. Uh, You can get a full refund in February. Come hang out with us. I'm going to be there. A lot of swans will be there. A lot of Bitcoiners will be there. So it's always fun to get in real life. Uh, interactions with other Bitcoiners um, and just make sure you stack stats and have a good time. So PacificBitcoin.com, lock in those early bird tickets, click that QR code and thank you so much for listening. I'll see you guys next week.